Thanks for listening to the Christ Covenant Sermon Podcast. For more information, visit ChristCovenant.com. It is really good to be back with you guys. I enjoyed being here last year. You are an incredibly warm and welcoming congregation. And I'm um, glad my wife is with me this year. And we have experienced the same thing. Uh, it's, it's fun and exciting to see what God is doing through this congregation in this part of Atlanta, which actually is extremely close to the very place where I was born. I, I entered the world at Piedmont Hospital back in 1957, and um, at, at that point, it was the new Piedmont Hospital, let me add, um, and it's, it's good to be uh, here sort of full circle. I would ask you to open your Bibles to Acts chapter 18. I'm going to be continuing the series uh, that your pastor has already begun uh, through the book of Acts. We're going to be looking at the experience of the Apostle Paul in the city of Corinth. So Acts 1, we'll be reading verses 1 through through verse 17. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, with his wife Priscilla, recently come from Italy, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own hands, on on heads. I am innocent. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it's a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. And they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. Let's pray before we go any further. Father, you love your word. And you have given us an unbelievable, priceless treasure in your word. We have truth that we can rely on entirely as we look into Scripture. Father, we are grateful to you that the same Holy Spirit that inspired Luke to record these words for us also is here, and we pray that your Spirit would, would take your word and use it not only to reshape our minds, to think like you do, but also to reshape our lives to look more like Jesus and to empower us to serve him better. Father, um, I'm not adequate for that at all, but you are. And I ask you to come and be the one who does the work 
and the one who gets the glory. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It's pretty commonplace among evangelical Christians to comment these days that we live in a wicked age. Now, my wife and I have spent much of the last quarter century or so living outside the United States, and one of the consequences of living overseas is that you notice changes in ways perhaps the people who live here don't. It's like the boiling frog thing. You know, you're in it, it just sort of slowly changes. We step away, step back in, and notice how dramatically different things are. And I have to tell you that the America of today is very different from the America of 1992 when we first left the United States. And even the America of 1992 was significantly different from the America of my childhood in Atlanta in the 60s. This is a different world. And this is perhaps most clearly seen in changes in moral standards. So what was appalling in the 60s is celebrated today. Our perspective on sexuality, ours in the church, is now regarded, in fact, as actually immoral by much of the world. What was black is now white. What was evil is now called good. And, and you hear people asking, how can we be Christians, and especially how can we share the gospel effectively in an immoral age like this? But actually, the interesting thing here is that the world we live in today is more like the world of the Apostle Paul than just about any age in between. And that's especially true when you think of a city like Corinth. Now, Corinth was in Greece. It was a port city. Uh, If you've ever looked closely at a map of Greece, it looks like this one peninsula, but you realize that there's this gulf that, that goes almost all the way across, right about the middle of the country, and this little narrow isthmus of land that connects the two halves together. And Corinth occupied that isthmus. Corinth was a place then in which ships would come from one side, they would you know, unload their, their cargo, the, the, the cargo would be carried overland a very short distance to the other side, put on ships and could go on, and that was much faster and cheaper than going all the way around the Peloponnesus in the southern part of Greece. Port cities, though, have always, in every age and in every continent, been notorious for their, their looseness of life, and, and Corinth was no exception. Corinth was well known for its paganism, it was also well known for its immorality, so much so that they actually coined a term, and in Greek, to Corinthianize, meant to fornicate. It was, I mean, can you imagine if to Atlanta meant to commit sexual, Im- sexual immorality? Uh, that's sort of what it was like to live in a city like Corinth. And yet Paul had a thriving ministry here, and he left behind a church that we can tell from his letters he dearly loved. So we can learn a lot as we look at Paul in Corinth about how we are to minister in an age and a society environment like the ones we have here. Uh, The first thing I want to point out as we look at what Paul did in Corinth is simply another illustration, as you've seen in the other cities that Paul has visited, of his understanding of what it meant to be a missionary and the method that he pursued. Today there's a lot of confusion about that, and I notice that as as I go around to churches, as I talk to students, that this whole concept of mission is, is vague. It is, it is multifaceted in people's minds. And there's confusion. What does it mean for Christians to be on mission? What's the mission of the church? Is it only evangelism? Is it evangelism that's accompanied by church planting? Or is it a whole bunch of other things? Does it involve works of mercy? Does it involve the pursuit of justice? Does it involve cultivating and or redeeming culture? Are those 
all part of the mission of the church. Well, in Corinth, we see what Paul thought is the mission of the church because he did there what he did everywhere else he went. He shared the gospel, and he left behind a church. That clearly, in the minds of the apostles, was at least the tip of the spear, as it were, of the mission that God has given us to do in a world that doesn't know Jesus. Share the gospel and plant a church. I mean, this was, after all, what Jesus told his followers to do in the Great Commission. And hopefully you've noticed that Jesus didn't just give the Great Commission once. He actually gave it several times over the course of the days between his resurrection and his ascension. And we have it in different words at different points in those days because it was so important that Jesus said it over and over again. And so in Matthew, we have the account in which he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, all people groups, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I commanded you, and I'll be with you always to the end of the age as you do that task. You come to Luke's gospel, and there at the very night of that first Easter, uh, he said, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and rise again, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning in Jerusalem. Book of Acts, just as Jesus is getting ready to ascend into heaven, they're, they're still sort of wondering what's going on. There's, they still have this little political agenda in the back of their minds. They're saying, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? In other words, you're going to make us top dogs. You're going to kick the Romans out. You're going to relieve us from the oppression we're experiencing. And Jesus said, it's not for you to know those times. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. But wait until you've been clothed with power from on high. And so Jesus consistently combined together the outpouring of his Holy Spirit with his own authority being manifested in his believers, which was to be obeyed by them going to all the nations of the earth and sharing the gospel, and because sharing the gospel isn't just something you do and walk away, you share the gospel in order to make disciples. And because the New Testament makes it clear that discipleship really most effectively happens in the context of a local church, that means sharing the gospel also involves planting and nurturing healthy churches. That's then what the apostles always did. Now, yes, they did some other things. Uh, they certainly did works of mercy as they went. And they did that simply because that's what a disciple of Jesus does. A disciple of Jesus is someone who obeys everything that Christ commanded. And if you can look at human suffering, human need, and not be moved, then it, it's actually kind of a question mark whether you have the Spirit of Christ in you or not. If that doesn't affect you at all, then you really aren't looking at the world through God's eyes. So they did those things automatically as disciples of Jesus, but that wasn't their, their sort of their main thrust. There is actually no evidence at all that they sought actively as their main agenda to corrective injustice in society. Now, absolutely, they demanded that believers act justly in their spheres of power. And so Paul talks to, to fathers and mothers. He talks to slaveholders and insists that they act in a way that is just toward those that they have some sort of authority over. But when you think about it, the, the early Christians had almost no authority. 
in society. They, they, were, they were the outcasts. Um, they were, by and large, subject people under foreign occupation in an, in an utterly undemocratic society who had no political voice whatsoever. What you don't find is the apostles encouraging them to engage in some sort of social or political activism. Instead, they were simply to be just people within the sphere of influence that God had given them. And there is no creation of culture, although certainly they sought to bring all of life under Jesus. What they did, they shared the gospel, they discipled believers, and they planted churches, just like Paul did here in Corinth. And these disciples then, as disciples, did works of mercy and justice, brought culture under the lordship of Jesus as disciples of Jesus. But the point is that until you are a disciple of Jesus, none of those other things are really going to have any eternal significance. And so he sent people out into the world to make more and more pockets of disciples who would reflect Jesus more and more in more and more places, but then also would continue to bring the gospel to other places as well. That was the mission that Christ gave his church, and that's what we see the apostles like Paul doing everywhere they went, including here in Corinth. Secondly, though, this this is a little more subtle, but I want you to notice the sovereignty of God in setting up the conditions for the spread of the gospel. Notice what Paul did when he arrived in Corinth. First thing he did was to go to the synagogue. And as you read through the book of Acts, you begin to discover that was his consistent pattern. He would go to the synagogue, except perhaps in a city where there was no synagogue, and then he would go, for example, by the river to see if there was a prayer place there. But it was his consistent pattern to go to the synagogue, and we're told here, reason with Jews and with God-fearing Greeks. Have you ever wondered how a synagogue ended up in Greece? Ever wondered who these God-fearers were and how they ended up there? I mean, this is not Palestine. This is Greece. Why were Jews even there? Well, this shows the genius of God and his control over history. Over five centuries earlier, almost six centuries earlier, in 587 B.C., the Babylonians conquered Jerusalem and scattered the Jews. They did so under God's sovereign hand as an act of judgment against the people of God for their idolatry and their disobedience in every area of life to him. Jews then were scattered all over the ancient world, and the scattering just kept getting broader and broader. Now, in the Old Testament, you worshipped God at the temple. As a matter of fact, God got really upset when people would set up particularly sacrifice places anywhere else. Now you've got groups of Jews who, by God's own sovereign hand, are scattered all over the ancient world. How were they to worship God and learn about his law? Well, they set up something new, something that actually is never commanded in the Old Testament, just developed, and that was groups of Jews would gather together on the Sabbath, and that assembly to to literally be led together in Greek is synagogue, And so they started this new thing, never before seen, where Jews would gather, they would hear from his law, they would pray a a set of prayers that they developed that became uniform across the Jewish world, and they thus, thus preserved the knowledge of the true God, and didn't just preserve it, they spread it all over the ancient world. Huh. So God sent ahead of the gospel little landing pads with the knowledge of the true God, literally 
from the Atlantic Ocean deep into Asia. When we arrived in Central Asia, in the city of Samarkand, we found there a Jewish quarter that had been there since the days of Queen Esther. So literally for over, for, for 2,500 years, there had been Jews there. Now, where Jews were, there were also, of course, Gentiles around as well. And many of those Gentiles observed the moral behavior of the people of God. They heard teaching about there just being one God instead of the multitude of gods that the pagan world worshipped. And they were attracted to that God. Some actually went through the formal steps of converting to Judaism. But that was not an easy process to undertake. And so even more became God-fearing Gentiles. They were Gentiles who were attracted to the God of Israel, didn't undertake full conversion, but would hang out around the synagogue and seek to learn about this God to, to whom they felt a very, very strong attraction. And it was absolutely genius. That meant that at exactly the right moment in history, when these, these forerunners of the gospel had been spread all over the ancient world, that's when God released the gospel to the followers of Jesus to go to each one of these places. So it simply makes sense. What Paul was doing when he went to each city was to find those people, those people whom God had prepared through the, the teaching of his word over the centuries, who thus had the sort of the mental categories, the, the understandings of who God is and who we are and what happened in the world, uh, that the gospel would in fact make sense to them. And so we see then this, this, this genius of God that Paul found people already prepared for the gospel everywhere he went in the Roman world. It was just an amazingly glorious, uh, providential thing that God had accomplished. But God isn't just sovereign over big movements in history. God's also sovereign over individuals, over people. And notice that God already had people he called his own in Corinth. So think about the vision that Paul had. Uh, to begin with, it's, it's kind of comforting to me that as bold an apostle as Paul apparently was afraid and was tempted to be silent. You don't say, don't be afraid, keep on speaking and don't be silent, unless he was afraid and tempted to be silent. So obviously that was the issue that, that God was addressing in Paul's heart in this situation. But God's assurance to him, the way God assured him and encouraged him to keep on going was to say, I have many people in this city to keep on preaching. The assurance that we have that spurs us on in evangelism and missions is found in the sovereignty of God in salvation. God already had people whom he had chosen in Corinth. A high view of the sovereignty of God in salvation is not the enemy of evangelism and missions. Rather, it is the best possible encouragement to them. And so as we read to the end of the Bible and discover that God will be worshipped by a people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, and then we step back a couple of chapters and discover that that's because Jesus purchased with his blood people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. We can go to every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, not hoping that the mission will be successful, but knowing it will, because God already has people among those whom we go to evangelize. But I want you to notice, fourthly, the opposition that Paul and the gospel faced there in Corinth. Now, no surprise, because this is a consistent element in the book of Acts. Everywhere, pretty much, that Paul went, he encountered some form of opposition to his message and even to, to himself. Now, our tendency 
is to think that if things get tough, we must have been mistaken to do whatever it is that we're there to do. But mission work in the New Testament shows that the advance of the gospel actually always arouses opposition, and that opposition can sometimes, as it does here in Corinth, even turn violent. The man who was our missions mentor, a guy named Christy Wilson, who grew up as a missionary kid himself in Iran and then was one of the pioneers into Afghanistan right after World War II, used to tell us that he didn't feel confident he was in the will of God until trouble started. That he actually was a little uneasy if it went easy. That it didn't feel quite right because of this observation that everywhere the gospel advances, it, it stirs up the enemy of our souls, it stirs up the world, it stirs up people's flesh in enmity toward the word of God. And so that was the experience here. But I would say even deeper than that, even deeper than, huh, okay, so I guess maybe I really ought to expect some sort of opposition. I think this raises for us the issue of a consistent theological theme in the New Testament. Not just that the gospel will arouse opposition, but that in consequence of the enmity between the world, the flesh, and the devil, and God and his work, that suffering is a normal part of the normal Christian life. And we need to make sure we have a robustly biblical theology of suffering if we are to be useful to God. The gospel's purpose is not to make you safe or comfortable. The gospel makes no promises you won't be hurt. It doesn't even make promises you won't be killed. In fact, it promises that you will be persecuted. It promises that you will suffer in this world. God's agenda is not our comfort. God's agenda is not our worldly success. God's agenda for us is our conformity to the image of Christ. And so while we may pray that God advances us in our career this way or gives us this material blessing over here, God's looking at us and thinks, I love you so much, I'm going to do whatever it takes to make you like Jesus. And generally, there's a certain amount of rigor involved in whatever it takes to make us like Jesus. So, he promises that that's going to be accomplished. He promises that we will become like Christ. And what needs to happen in the life of a disciple is that our value system changes such that we're more excited about that than we are about our comfort, our safety, our success, our advancement in our career. That, that we actually can embrace whatever God brings along that's going to make us more like him. Just like someone who's in an athletic uh, profession, so, someone who, who wishes to become good at a sport, will actually do things to themselves that aren't that comfortable. A good coach will actually stretch people far beyond their comfort if, if they're going to become good at the sport. And so God, as it were, is our trainer who is, who is so committed to us being like Jesus that he will push us way outside what's comfortable for us precisely in order to make us more like his son because that's our ultimate destiny. So he doesn't promise what we may want, but he promises what he knows that, that we need. And he also promises that he'll bring us safely home. And so the, the promises of protection are not that I'll get home to heaven when I'm about 98 years old 
after living a really healthy, prosperous life and then have a quick, comfortable passage into eternity. But he promises, I'm going to make it home. And if we have a properly biblical understanding of what that means, a properly biblical understanding of how glorious it will be to be face-to-face with Christ, that should excite us more than whatever it is we go through during this brief journey between here and there. His other agenda for us is that we be useful in his service. And we are most useful in his service when we are most broken before him and most conformed to his image. And so if we really want what God wants for us, that we be like Jesus and we be useful to Jesus, then suddenly suffering takes on a very different appearance to us, no longer as something to be avoided at all costs, certainly no longer as any sort of boundary to our obedience to Christ, but rather as a friend that God may occasionally bring into our lives or maybe consistently bring into our lives to make us more like him and more useful to him. So, as we look at what we see right here in this passage, we see several consistent themes reiterated for us, that that the mission was to share the gospel and plant churches, that God had set it all up, had people there, and his sovereignty was the friend of that mission work, and that wherever the gospel advances, it's going to bring opposition, and far from running away from that, we should embrace it as part of God's design for our lives. I want us for just a few minutes now to look even beyond this passage to think about what else we know about the church in Corinth because of the letters that Paul wrote. And let's just be honest, this church was a mess. If you have read First and Second Corinthians, you've scratched your head and gone, oh my gosh, you mean that was happening in the early church? In fact, sometimes I, we sort of joke around when someone says, I want to be like a New Testament church. I think, you mean like Corinth? You want to be like Corinth? <laughs> Think about that place. They, were, they experienced division over popular leaders. I am of Paul. I am of Apollos. I am of Cephas. I am of Christ. And so you, you, you had this, this sort of arrogant divisiveness within the church. You had incredible sexual immorality in the church. You had lawsuits going on between members of the church. You had people dabbling in pagan practices in the name of Christian liberty. You had people trampling on the consciences of weaker brothers and sisters. Apparently, the worship services were just chaos from all the descriptions. And that surrounded both the Lord's Supper and the exercising of spiritual gifts. And there was even doctrinal confusion over the doctrine of the resurrection of the body. Now, in some ways, that's kind of encouraging to us because church planting is messy. It always has been. It always will be. And that's even true if the church planter is an apostle. Okay, think about it. This is Paul planted this church. And he didn't just plant and run. He stuck around for a while. He was there for over a year and a half. And yet, despite as good a teaching as he would have given, as good a foundation as he would have laid, quickly this church was influenced by its culture. And because of its culture and because of the baggage that people brought into the church, it was a mess. And so one of the the things we see here is that Paul didn't plant and walk away. Yes, after a time he did go on because he was a pioneer missionary, and we see him demonstrating that gifting and that calling. So he did go on to take the gospel where it wasn't known yet, but he visited again. He apparently was there more than once. 
uh, he sent others there, other workers like Apollos went, whose job doesn't seem to have been so much that of pioneer missionary as the kind of missionary who goes and walks alongside new churches to help them be healthy, to help them understand and apply the Word of God effectively to their lives. He sent visitors like Timothy to check on them, and when he couldn't do any of those things, he wrote letters, and, and we're blessed by the fact that he wrote those letters because they preserved for us things that are still relevant to us. He kept track and stayed involved. We see here that unity, moral purity, and theological integrity all matter, and that as part of his missionary activity, Paul continued to monitor those things and to invest in those things. And in fact, in the very things that he thought it was necessary to deal with, we see the things that matter for all churches of all times. Precisely because the Corinthian church messed up in those things, we now know very clearly that it matters that the church is unified, that the church not divide over leaders, that there not be factions in the church that fight with each other. We see that purity and holiness of life are critical for a church. And we see that theological integrity, doctrinal purity matter. I mean, the church is supposed to be diverse when it comes to gender. And by the way, um, at the expense of incredible political and cultural heresy, I'm just going to go ahead and say it. There are two genders, and they are determined genetically and fixed forever in a person. So there's gender diversity in that there are women who were born women, and there are men who were born men, and that's good. That's the end of the story on that one. There is supposed to be diversity racially and ethnically. That is celebrated in the church. There's supposed to be diversity socioeconomically in the church, but there is not supposed to be diversity morally, and there's not supposed to be diversity theologically. There, there is to be unity, unity that is founded on Christ and his word. All of these things matter, and we see it because a church founded by one of the best church planters that's ever lived planted a church that was in a society where the world was constantly pressing in and was introducing things that were contrary to the will of Christ, and therefore they had to be addressed. So, just, just to, to pull it all together then, Paul's experience in Corinth was a microcosm of his missionary career. He focused on evangelism and church planting. He found his encouragement in the sovereignty of God, both the sovereignty of God in providence in preparing the way for the gospel and the sovereignty of God in salvation in having specific people who will be saved as we share the gospel. He faced opposition. It was normal and expected, and he kept going in the face of that opposition. Now, what does that mean for us over 2,000 years later? The first thing I would say is that the mission is the same, and we're not done yet. At the time of the Apostle Paul, there were maybe 170 million people alive in the world, total. We didn't hit 1 billion until 1804. We're at 7 billion now. And of those 7 billion, 2.9 billion at least live among people groups that have no access to the gospel. Just to give you a comparison, the year I was born, 1957, there were 2.7 billion people alive in the world. There's now 2.9 billion or more just in unreached people groups. 
But then if you look at overall the percentage of the world's population that is not evangelical Christian, it's 96%. 96% of the world's population is lost. 4% are evangelical Christians. So that means then that there's well over 6 billion lost people in the world. And so the mission is still there. The mission to take the gospel to those who haven't heard it, both where we are and where the church is not yet. That means for you here in this area that the imperative remains that you be an evangelistic church. If you are not an evangelistic church, the whole missionary method of the New Testament falls apart. Because what Paul did, what the apostles did, was to go places, plant churches, and move on, not because everyone in that, in that place had heard the gospel, because they were leaving behind a church that had the responsibility to continue the work where it was there. That's why Paul could make the astonishing statement in Romans that he had no more room for work in the eastern Mediterranean. He said, from Jerusalem as far as Illyricum, modern Croatia, I have fully preached. I've literally fulfilled the gospel. Not because he'd shared the gospel with everyone, because he'd left a string of churches, and the expectation is clear. He expected those churches to keep going. And so God has planted you here in this place, in this incredible city, so that you can continue the work of the apostles, that you can continue the ministry of the mission that God gave his church and not only are there plenty of indigenous people around here who have already passed into a post-Christian environment, who may even have grown up in church but never heard the gospel in those churches, God is also bringing the nations to you. And he is bringing the nations to you so that you can share the gospel with them. You know, it, it just really doesn't matter how you feel politically about the fact that the nations are here, about the, event, about the immigration issue. The fact is, the same sovereign God who put those synagogues and those God-fearers in a place like Corinth as a landing pad for the gospel in Paul's day put those people from the nations right here in the Atlanta area so that you could share Jesus with them. That's why they're there. And you to embrace them as friends loved by God whom he has brought to be your ministry even where you are right here. But in addition to being a an evangelistic church, I would encourage you, plead with you to be a missionary sending church. And that means cultivating an atmosphere in which going to the nations is encouraged and celebrated. Now, that can be a hard word for parents and grandparents. That means we're encouraging you to raise your children in such a way that it would, get, it would be exciting to you if your child came to you and said, I really feel God moving me to spend the rest of my life in one of the islands of Indonesia where Jesus is not yet known. I really feel God calling me to spend the rest of my life in Afghanistan, in provinces where Jesus is not yet known. That needs to be the kind of atmosphere in our families, and it needs to be the atmosphere in this church, that literally you're, you're sort of spurring each other on to take the gospel where it isn't yet, rather than just sort of passively waiting to see if, if a lightning bolt strikes somebody and they get the crazy idea that they ought to go do something insane, like take the gospel to Indonesia or Afghanistan. You should be encouraging one another in that direction. I would encourage you to evaluate missions through the lens of the missionary task. 
And so, yes, there are many great things we can do, but make sure that as we're doing those things, we're also sharing the gospel and planting churches. Uh, my, my personal conviction is that with all the good things we can do in the world, if the gospel's not shared, it's not missions. If the Red Cross could do it as well as we could, then it's not missions. Because we not only meet needs, we also meet the greatest need, which is the need for eternal life in Jesus. And so we have defined the missionary task basically with, with six parts. Those six parts are entry. We need to find where people are who don't know the gospel, who have needs. We need to find out how to get to them. And in many cases, getting to them cannot be overtly as a missionary. And so a huge portion of the unreached peoples in the world, those who have no access to the gospel around them, are in countries where you just can't go as a missionary. You, you go to the embassy and say, hey, I want to go share the gospel in your country, and they're going to say, forget it, get out of here. But they will let you come in as an engineer or a doctor or a nurse or med tech or a business person or an athlete or a sports coach or a teacher or any number of other secular professions that you can leverage for the sake of the gospel in those places. So we got to find them, we got to figure out how to get to them, and then we have to learn the language. And while it is true that a large portion of the world's population speaks some English, um, it's also true that most don't, and that even those who do will understand the gospel far better if it's, if it's explained to them in the language they think and feel and dream in. So we have entry, and then we have the four sort of core components, which are we share the gospel, we disciple believers, we plant churches, and we train leaders for those churches. And that's the heart of the missionary task. And then we've named exit as the sixth component because our goal is not to be there forever. Our goal is to work our way out of a job. And so as we train leaders, we are literally training our own replacements. And we want to come to the point where we can move further on and bring them with us, that they are now our full partners in taking the gospel even deeper into the darkness. So I would encourage you to evaluate missions through the lens of that missionary task and ask yourself, in whatever we're doing, is the gospel getting to people who've never heard it before? Or is the gospel resulting in fully robustly biblical discipleship happening in fully robustly biblical churches? And are those churches developing leaders who can continue even if we get kicked out? But then finally, the application has to be to each person in this room individually. And that's to ask yourself the question, why should I not be someone who takes the gospel where Jesus is not known? Now, normally we ask it the other way around. Normally we presume that we are to stay where we are unless we get struck by lightning, followed by the clouds rearranging themselves with our name and the name of a country to go to, followed by a dream, then with a prophetic utterance in church the next day aimed at us. And then we might think about it. We have the command of Scripture. The command is to go and make disciples of all nations. And so I would say that we, we need to flip the question and ask ourselves, well, why not? Why not me? Why shouldn't I leverage what God has given me to take the gospel to those who have never heard it? Uh, my prayer is that this missions conference will unsettle people in this church, will make some people maybe intensely uncomfortable, until you get comfortable, 
in a sense, by going somewhere you've never been before. Take the gospel to those who have never had a chance to hear it. One of the inevitable consequences of the faithful preaching of the word of God is that churches where that happens end up sending some of their best to places where Jesus isn't known yet. And my prayer for this church is that even as you continue to work your way through Acts, even as you continue to see Paul's ministry in a variety of settings, even as you, as you continue to see the gospel advancing where it had never been before, uh, that God will plant in you a restlessness that will compel you to be that same kind of person, and that out of this congregation of people, the gospel will go places where right now the people have no chance to hear about Jesus at all. Let's pray. Father, we rejoice in the fact that the gospel reached us. We thank you that we have had the enormous privilege and blessing, not just of of having some access to the gospel, but having abundant access to the gospel. Thank you for the Bibles that are in our hands and in our homes. Thank you for the churches that are in this city. Thank you for all the ways you have been gracious to us. Father, I pray that this congregation would be a group of people who are not stopping points for that blessing, but conduits for it to go further. And I pray that you would raise up out of this congregation many who would take Jesus to to those who've never heard of him before. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Christ Covenant Sermon Podcast. If you have any prayer needs, questions, or comments about the sermon, we would love to hear from you. So please text us at 678 951-9041, or feel free to email Jason at jason at christcovenant.com.